Today's Bible reading is uh, from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. It can be found on page 1,231 or page 988 in the Church Bibles. It's also on the screen and in your leaflet. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is a testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Well, good morning. For those who don't know me, my name's Ella Saxon. I normally uh, attend the 9am service. And uh, it's actually nice to be here at 11am. Some of the people I haven't had a chance to catch up with since 10am went both ways. But it's a privilege to be able to bring God's word to you. And uh, Cameron, as you know, might, he's away this week down at the south coast, uh, preaching in Duncan's place. And uh, Duncan's going to reciprocate, I believe, next week and come up and preach here. Um, now, this is the last of the series of One John, and uh, next week we'll start a new series. Now, John's written this letter to a group of believers who had found themselves in the most unsettling situation. Some of them had abandoned their faith in Jesus as Messiah, as it had first been taught to them. They found the claim that God had come to earth in a human body impossible to reconcile with the common Greek idea, and that was that the flesh is evil and that only the spirit is good. But despite their denial of the Messiah their accompanying immoral lives, their lack of practical love, they still professed to know God and belong to God. They asserted that their spiritual insight put them above the rest of the group. They considered themselves super spiritual and they deserted the fellowship. Now that caused those that were left behind to be deeply shaken, questioning their faith, uncertain, unsure, about everything that they had been taught. Were they correct in their belief? Or were, in fact, those who had departed correct in theirs? 
And it begs the question, who is the real Christian? And we'll look at that this morning. It's against this background of belief, unbelief, that John writes his letter. And John, who had been an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ, begins, <clears throat> begins to reassure them of what they had heard from the beginning was in fact the truth. His letter testifies to the reality of the Messiah's coming in the flesh, ensuring the readers, the believers, that they have indeed full access to the truth. Just before we begin today's reading, and thank you, Melissa, for reading that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, speak to us so that we might come to know more of you and your ways and be changed by it. Let us in particular see what it is to be a follower of Christ and as such how to live our lives. We thank you for the freedom and peace we have to worship and praise you. And we ask that you be, work, be at work in everyone here this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus begins, uh, John rather, I'm elevating him in status there. John begins today's reading with a statement, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone. It's all inclusive. It includes all those who satisfy the condition, that is, they believe that Jesus is the Christ, particularly that he died and rose again. And conversely, it excludes all those who don't believe. The emphasis in the statement is on the object of faith, Jesus Christ, not the subjective uh, experience of believing. It's designed to increase the assurance of John's audience, and as it's written in the present tense, it's applicable just as much to us today as it was to them at that time. But what does born of God actually mean? Well, John best explains it in the first chapter of his gospel in verses 12 and 13. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human design, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now if we pluck out the phrase, those who believed in his name, we can see that the Christian faith, our faith, has an irreducible, unreducible, non-negotiable foundation. And combining verses 1 and 5 of today's reading, we see exactly what it is that Christians believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is the faith. It alone makes a person a Christian. And from the very beginning of the church, on the day of Pentecost, this was a content of the apostolic faith and gospel message. We read in Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. As we come to understand that faith in Christ is the cause of new birth, John draws our attention to the first two fruits that demonstrate the reality of our faith in the Christian life. And the first of these is revealed as John continues in verse 1. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. 
It's clearly love. When we, uh, when we are born again, our response to God is one of gratitude and love. And as in the human sense, when we have a special affection for and interest in the children of our friends, we expressed our, our gratitude and love for our Heavenly Father for the, all that he has done for us by our own love for all his children, beginning with his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then his adopted children. That vertical love that we have for the Father that Cameron mentioned last week flows out horizontally in our love for the children of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now John's not saying it's a duty we have to, be, have to fulfill, but rather it is evidence, a symptom, a characteristic of true Christianity without which none of us can cl truly claim to be born again. It's evidence of grace at work. Now we, we may question ourselves on hearing that. Do I really love the children of God? How do I know? Do I fall short in that regard? And as doubts creep in, we may even question whether we're really born again. Well, as if anticipating those questions, those doubts, John continues in verse 2. This is how we know we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Carrying out his commands. Obedience, the second way in which faith is demonstrated in the life of the Christian, the second fruit of our faith, by loving God and being obedient. If we have faith, it will overflow in the form of these two fruits that I've just mentioned. Faith, love and obedience are the three essential ingredients of the Christian life. And John shows that they are so essentially linked into a single coherent fabric that it's difficult, perhaps impossible, to unpick or disentangle the threads. And if these qualities are present in our lives then we can rest assured that our love for fellow Christians is genuine. Now John's usual approach is not like that. It's to say that people claim, people's claims to love God are tested by the presence or absence of love for fellow believers as evidenced earlier in the letter in 1 John 2.9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, is still in the darkness, he says. The complete opposite to what he's saying today. He seems to have turned 360 degrees. And you might have been here during week one when Cameron mentioned this, that John writes in circular arguments. And this is a good example. However, the conclusion we can come to is this. One cannot love God and keep his commands without loving the children of God. And one cannot love the children of God without loving God and keeping his commands, love and obedience. Now we must remember that John is speaking to those on the inside here, those who all claim, who all profess to be Christians. But are they? The evidence of who the real Christians are is determined with, by whether they have love for the children of God and God himself. As well as, as well as being obedient to him. 
they're identified by their fruit. John couldn't put it any more plainly than in, than in the beginning of verse 3, where he says, this is love for God, to keep his commands. It doesn't mean it's easy to fulfill God's commands. We all retain an inbuilt bias away from God through our sinful human nature. The new spiritual life implanted within the Christian is constantly warring against that sinful nature. But the more we abide in Christ, we, the more we, we uh, draw on our Saviour's limitless resources through prayer and the written word, the more we love what he loves, the more we hate what he hates, the more we'll experience increasing victory over sin. To profess love for God but fail to keep his commands is a nonsense. It probably, probably indicates that we think his commands are a bore, a chore, a heavy load, maybe too hard. And what does that say about our attitude to God? Perhaps our love is not as it should be. Perhaps we don't respect God enough. Perhaps we rely too much on grace and let our, our obedience become diluted, watered down. As I wrote this, it caused me to examine my life, to take stock of where I stood in regard to these things. It's something we might be all encouraged to do over the coming week, and we may find that in doing so, there's a need for repentance. Now, going back to thinking that God's commands may be too hard for us, John again seems to contemplate our thoughts in verse 3 by saying his commands are not burdensome. And Jesus had said words to this effect in Matthew 11.30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we love someone, a wife, a husband, a children, a parent, it's not a burden to do something for them. It's a pleasure to do it out of love. And the same applies to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. John continues in verse 4, For everyone born of God overcomes the world, even our faith. The author defines what it is that enables people born of God to overcome the world. It's their faith, their belief. And where does that lie? In Christ. The object of our faith has overcome the world and our faith in him gives us victory over the things of this world. Our new birth removes us from the sphere of decay and death and translates us into the kingdom of eternal life, true life. Praise God for that. Listen to the words from 1 John 2.17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And from 3.14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Lives forever, pass from death to life. That is eternal life. What a wonderful promise to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. However, in John's day and up to the present day, the clearest feature of the enemy, the evil one, Satan, 
and of the world system in which he controls is the denial that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, de denying his deity and destroying his humanity. He'd caught the rebels, the breakaways in his trap. Let's not let, any of, let's not let him trap any of us here today. Once we come to believe that Jesus is in, is in fact the Christ and the Son of God, that he died and rose for us, the enemy's hold on us is broken forever. Praise God for that. Now, our faith, our believing, is not, however, the means by which victory over the world is achieved. Has overcome indicates a victory which has been, been achieved once for all. And that's in the great events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's where victory is accomplished. He's the object of our faith. Jesus and his eternal work of salvation. The victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world, asked John? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe? If not, will you believe today? Now in verses 1 to 5, we've heard Jesus called the Christ and the Son of God. And moving on to verse 6, he is further described more fully by John, especially with regard to his mission here on earth. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. What the heck does all that mean? Let's investigate. It's obvious that John's belief is different than that of the false teachers. They believe that Jesus came by water alone, and that's where the dispute lies. Now, scholars and commentators have found this text a very difficult thing to interpret. And reading commentaries, I've found that some of them had five or six different answers. But the most satisfactory answer is that coming by water refers to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and coming by water and blood, the whole of his ministry, including his death and resurrection. Jesus' coming began to be revealed at his baptism in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. He was coming to take up that work, the work that the Father had entrusted him to do. You may remember the voice from heaven which declared, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now the, the breakaway group had no difficulty in affirming that Christ had come in or by water. What they couldn't accept, in fact, they denied it, was the fact that Jesus came by blood, that he died as an atonement for sin. However, both must be taken as a single confirmation of his real humanity, his total humanity. Water and blood are the means by which Jesus came into the world to accomplish his purpose for coming, that mission of salvation, commencing with his baptism and climaxing with his death for sin and resurrection. And John is at pains in his letter to stress that, John, uh, that Jesus did not come by water alone. Now, if anyone had any doubts about this, 
John goes on to say in the last part of verse 6, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. That is, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth about Jesus, the truth of the message, the message that they heard from the beginning. And John reveals the ultimate authority, the Holy Spirit. But how does the Spirit do that? How does the Spirit testify to us, for example? Well, through the eyewitness accounts of John and the Apostles, through God's Word, by testifying with our spirit, as mentioned in Romans 8.16. And we have our own eyewitness accounts as we see lives with, around us converted, transformed through Christ by the power of God, the power of grace, grace at work in changing people's lives. The Spirit's testimony can't be questioned. The Spirit is truth. John's audience can have absolute faith in who Jesus is and why he came and what he did, just as we can. So if they know the truth, what advice does John give to the believers, give to us? Well, if you'd like to look back at chapter 2, verse 24, we hear this. As for you, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. It's imperative. It's wise advice. Advice that we can take on board today, just as John's audience would have done at that time. So let nothing but nothing distract us from the, our walk of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let us, to quote Philippians 3.14, press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All praise be to him. Now John continues in verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now in both the Old and New Testaments, important issues were decided with the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we've looked at the spirit testifying, but what about the water and the blood? Well, in John's gospel, when people will not accept Jesus' own testimony about himself, he points them to his works. For these two bear witness, albeit silent witness, to the truth about him. Listen to the words of John 5.36, where Jesus is speaking. I have testimony weightier, weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. So combined with the Spirit's witness as to who Jesus is, there is the silent witness of Jesus' work as both the baptizer and the one who made the atoning sacrifice, the water and the blood. And John adds, as we've heard, all three are in agreement. They concur in their testimony. They point to the truth about one person, the truth about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John continu continues this theme of witness in verses 9 to 12 and also expands on it to include the gift of eternal life given by God to all those who do believe the testimony concerning his Son. Verse 9 reads, 
We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Now this is simply a general statement that indicates God's testimony is always more important, carries more weight, has greater worthiness when compared to human testimony. God's testimony identified with the testimony of the eyewitnesses, that's God speaking through them, to which John was one. Verse 10 says, Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in their heart. Those believers to whom John is writing have in themselves the true testimony concerning Jesus Christ, which they heard from the eyewitnesses, have accepted it and internalised it. And John is affirming that this testimony is in the Christian person, you and me, because we're believing in the Son of God. Believing means more than a permanent and continuous. Believing means a permanent and continuous action. It's more than simply believing what Christ says in the sense of understanding it or even accepting it. To believe in Christ is to commit ourselves to Him as fully as we can in faithful reliance on Him. Following our acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, our new birth in Him there develops a growing inner conviction that the things about him are true. Our belief in him is confirmed and then deepened and strengthened by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, when we read in scripture of all that Christ has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, those things transform our lives, transform the lives of all believers. God testifies to us. He wants his children, you and me, to be assured of their relationship with him as reconciled, forgiven sinners. What of unbelief? Well, John continues, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. John again had the breakaway group in mind, but he again uses present tense here. It's applicable to people who haven't accepted, won't accept Jesus today as it was then. They rejected God's testimony. Have you? There is ample evidence to believe for faith in Christ. From John's eyewitness account, to the three witnesses testifying to the the truth as we've heard today. Humankind's problem is not so much ignorance, but more rebellion. Not that we cannot believe, but rather that we will not. We refuse. So where do you stand today? Where does that place you? Now, some commentators regard verses 11 and 12 as among the most magnificent in the whole of the New Testament. They read, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
the consequences of believing God's truth or denying it could hardly be more, more important or far-reaching or opposite. Eternal destinies are at stake. Our relationship, non-relationship with Christ determines the future of every future destiny of every one of us. Whoever has the Son, that is, whoever believes, uh, has the faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, has eternal life. Listen to the words of John 17, verses 2 to 3, speaking of Jesus. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I asked a few minutes ago, where do you stand today? If you believe God's testimony about his son, have eternal life, have been forgiven of your sins and made acceptable to him, then praise God for that. But don't rest in cheap grace. Remember love. Remember obedience, the evidences of grace. Let us continue in our faith, our belief, till the end. If you haven't accepted God's testimony as yet, then there is both bad news and good news for you today. The bad news is that you're still under God's judgment. Your sins are not yet forgiven. You stand with the rebels under the sentence of death. It's a sobering thought, a frightening thought. But the good news is that the door's not yet closed. God is still accepting repentant sinners. If we look again at verse 12, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's a matter of acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Saviour. God's given you more time. He's delayed the return of the Lord Jesus Christ so that more unbelievers, more rebels, more sinners might turn to him. He loves you and doesn't want anyone to perish. He's given you more opportunity and that opportunity is now, today. Will you take it up? Jesus, Son of God, eternal life. Rebellion, judgment, death. It doesn't have to be your fate. Will you accept Jesus as the Son of God today? Accept that he died and rose again for you so that you can be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. Will you confess that you haven't lived God's way and ask him to have mercy on you? Would you like to invite Jesus into your heart today? If you've answered yes to any of these questions or if you do have other questions, I'd love to meet up with you after the service just down here at the front and we can speak further and pray. But on that note, let us all pray. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you this morning and hear your word. We pray that what we've heard we might take on board, live it out through our lives, be changed by it, and draw closer to Christ. We pray those who don't yet know you will hear your word, that you might touch them and turn their faces towards you. And we ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. May glory, honour and power be his forever and ever. Amen.